Welcome to FF Plus, a new spoiler-free outlet for movie reviews, entertainment recommendations, and discussion. Here you will find a little bit of everything, from what's been entertaining us, to trailer reactions, industry hot topic conversation, and even film award predictions. We hope you'll enjoy this addition to the Feelin' Film lineup and join us each week. Now, on to the show. Hello, listeners. It's been a while, huh? Two months, if I count correctly, since our last FF Plus episode. It has been a busy time uh, for me with my recent move and award season coming on strong, but I'm thrilled to be back, even though Patrick's not here, uh, and able to share some reviews with you all. Here to chat about these movies with me is a first-time guest and a member of the Feel and Film Facebook group. He is also a member of the Seattle Film Critics Society, Paul Carlson of Escape Into Film. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm uh, excited to talk about these four wildly different <laughs> movies. Yes, it is quite the collection, isn't it? And um, I am super glad to have you, Paul. Uh, we've talked for, I think, two years now about eventually having you come on the show and talk, and this is our first opportunity. So I'm really excited about this, and I'm glad you were able to step in so we could go over some of these movies. A quick reminder, listeners, as we get started here, these are all spoiler-free. These are not the normal, deeper, thematic conversations that we have in main episodes. We are going to do our best to keep any surprises secret so that your viewing experience will not be hindered. So let's just jump into it, and we are going to start with the big daddy, the behemoth, the animated sequel from Disney, Frozen 2. This one is directed and written by Chris Buck and Jennifer Lee. It stars the voice talents of Adina Menzel, Kristen Bell, Josh Gad, and a whole other cast, including Sterling K. Brown, who will come up later in this episode as well. The plot synopsis, Anna, Elsa, Kristoff, Olaf, and Sven leave Arendelle to travel to an ancient autumn-bound forest of an enchanted land. They set out to find the origin of Elsa's powers in order to save their kingdom. So, Paul, I'm going to kick these to you first. Because I actually don't know what you think about most of these movies, and I want to know myself. So what did you think of Frozen 2? Well, it kind of met every expectation I had, and I want to preface that by saying I wasn't a fan of Frozen, the first one, to begin with. I uh, remember seeing that like after all the hype. I walked out, and I was like, okay, well, I don't know what all the hype is about. So this one I wasn't expecting much, and it kind of, you know, I kind of delivered on that. I mean, I, it's beautifully animated. I mean, mm -hmm. that has to be absolutely repeated because it is in the, like some of the sequences are just breathtaking to look at. I mean, that's not even arguable. Yeah, it seems to really have taken a jump in the animation category. I think that that seems to have happened every, I don't know, four or five years this decade. You know, a couple of times we've seen these, but Frozen was a big jump as well. And here we are taking another one, another big leap. It, you're right. It's beautiful. And I think that part of that is because there's more color to the animated sequences. It's not just all ice in this one. There's some more magic elements that are pulled into that. Um, I wonder, so you came to Frozen late. That would mean you probably didn't have kids yet. <laughs> Am I right? No. I did not. So, okay. uh, but in the years since, I did. I've heard that song. We all know which one it is. That song. <laughs> that everyone knows. Everyone knows not only the song I'm talking about, most of the lyrics. 
Oh yes, they certainly do. So, I mean, I, that song is so iconic at this point that I was, my expectation is, it's kind of unfair to Frozen 2 because how are you going to meet that? Yeah. I mean, that song was everywhere. Yep. So what is it that sets this one apart for you? Like, what about the story do you think is better than the story of Frozen 2? Or, or I guess what, you know, what works for you more than it did in, sorry, I, that's now it's going to, I hate when we talk about sequels. <laughs> what, Works better for you in Frozen 2 story-wise than it did in Frozen. Well, the first one was so rooted in the two sisters, and it just kind of, you know, it, it was very much their relationship, which was great. I, that's the one part of it, Frozen I really liked. The second part is the world building of Frozen 2, too. I mean, the fact that it really, you begin in the one area, but it really expands, and you get into a lot more of the history and the background of not only, you know, their land, but the land that surrounds them and the powers that are related, you know, to everything that's going on. So there's a lot more development, which I really appreciate. Yeah, I would have to agree with you there. You know, I think this one, it ended up after sleeping on it being slightly lesser than Frozen for me. Frozen is still pretty powerful and, and I was in it in its hype. You know, I saw it multiple times in the theater and just watched it on repeat when it came out. At, on home video. So I was part of that crowd. And I guess, you know, it has a special place for those of us that I think got caught up in that. But you're right about the world building. That is one thing that really stuck out to me and I enjoyed quite a bit is getting to go to a new area and getting to, as I mentioned before, see other magic powers at use. Things are expanded here. I actually personally was not a fan of the new characters. Did you feel that way about them or did you like any of them uh, they didn't add much i mean even the new characters you meet they're they're very peripheral mm -hmm. i mean it's still very much anna and elsa's story and i would say that to the point where Kristoff's whole plot is so tangential and it, almost it's so b plot it, it's comically like it could have been chopped it really could have yep i completely agree now he does get one of the best musical numbers though Oh, yeah. In the entire film that plays out like an 80s power ballad <laughs> music video. It is something to behold. And it is probably the one thing that I wanted to just immediately watch again as soon as this movie was over. That was so crazy. I was in there watching. I was like, this feels like one of those like infomercials for an <laughs> 80s hair band collection. Yes, yes. Totally. What about the rest of the music? Do you think that this soundtrack is going to take off in the same way that the Frozen one did? No. I think a lot more of the songs are so much more specific to the story, whereas something like Let It Go, if you look at just the lyrics of that one song, I mean, there's you can you don't have to – you can take it out of the context of that movie, and it's still very – anybody can connect with that one, whereas these are so rooted in it in this story that I don't know how you can't just plop them on the radio and kind of jam to it. It's a different set of songs. Yeah. I, I would actually completely agree with that. I actually, in my review said that I think that they feel more Broadway and people were like, Oh, well the first songs were Broadway too. Uh, yes. I know. I know that it's rooted in an idea of, you know, Broadway plays and that's where Adina Menzel came from. Yada, yada, but Broadway in the sense that you're right. They are plot progressing songs. They're not just anthems. Um, and Let It Go was certainly more of like an anthem, like you said, where just that chorus you can repeat over and over and over and it makes sense. There's nothing like that in Frozen 2. 
I think that their hope was the Into the Unknown yes. song, right? That's the one that we get two different versions of it. Uh, one in the, inside the actual film that's sung by, I think it's Adina Menzel. And then the, who is it? Is it Panic at the Disco that does the credits <laughs> version? Yeah, that's one. I was like, oh, this is the song they're going to try to push. Okay, I got it. Exactly. It, and even as I heard it, you're absolutely right. When I heard that song, just in the context of the film, I was like, oh, this is Adim, Adele, what, what did John Travolta call her? Adim Dizel, Zell, Dadim, I don't know, whatever. Uh, I, that was her range is incredible in that song. Oh yeah, it absolutely is. Like it's a, it's a well crafted song. I just don't think it is something that kids are going to go around singing. Um, and I, it's weird because I found myself singing it when I left the theater, but it quickly faded for me the next day. Um, I do think that there's some fun stuff here in the story as far as, uh, for adults, it, it's a lot darker. It's a lot heavier in my opinion than Frozen. I am curious how kids are going to react to this. I know they're going to enjoy some sequences of ice creatures that are formed of the new magical beings. There's some cuteness there, but my goodness, it's heavy. This is dealing with some serious stuff. I mean, colonization is an aspect that kind (laughs) of is coming up in this thing. Um, Yeah, it gets pretty dark and bleak, especially, you know, the back half of the movie where they're pushing out the new frontiers. It's like, oh, they're finding things. Okay. They are. And trying to figure out, you know, why their parents passed away, what happened to them. So that's also pretty heavy. Uh, yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to see how this one legs out. And I know it's having a wonderful box office opening, but is it going to be able to sustain that? Are people going to go back and see it over and over? The other question I actually wanted us to just touch on briefly. This has come up a lot on social media, and I've seen it really affect certain reviewers this whole concept of elsa's sexuality or lack thereof do you have any comment on that do you have any perspective for you like did elsa feel like she should or should not have had a girlfriend in this movie do you think it matters i don't think it matters in the context of the film this one specifically i think it is important at some point for some film, especially a Disney branded film to have uh, that lead, to have that character, to have that protagonist that is going to be very is, representation matters. So it will be important to uh, a lot of people when that does happen. Now to specifically to frozen Two and Elsa, it's just doesn't, it's not a factor. I mean, and I think of a lot of it is generally speaking, it is if you step back and say, okay, when you take a film, any film, and you have expectations pinned on it, and then that film doesn't fall through, that that you're disappointed, but you're only disappointed by your own expectations. You're not disappointed. The film didn't live up to what you wanted it to be. And I think that's the disconnect I think that people are, are having. I mean, I don't know that's fair to the film. Yeah, I can totally see that. I think that what I noticed in this one is – there are a few moments where Elsa is first meeting another character from this other land that they come upon. And the way that their interactions are framed within the film, there is a hint of some sort of connection and spark between these characters. And I think that it's almost a fault that Disney did that because it's like they 
they teased it, right? It's almost like Disney felt like they wanted to kind of, oh, you know, yes, she definitely, you know, has these pinings potentially for this other girl, but then we're just going to drop it completely and go nowhere with it. And I think that if they didn't have those moments, then we could really just look at Elsa and, and people wouldn't be as upset because they would be able to focus on the fact that Elsa is drawn as a strong character who doesn't want anybody, male, female, animal, companion, nothing. Like she's perfectly good on her own. And that's the, the, that's to me one of the strengths of Elsa as a character is that she doesn't need a prince or a princess, that she is solo and she is content in that and she's happy with that lifestyle and that, you know, there are single people out there like me right now, you know, being twice divorced that like I'm single. I may be for the rest of my life and I'm OK with that and I want to be represented. And to me, Elsa kind of represents that in a way. Yeah, I think that's a great point, because if you're going to it's kind of, you know, commit fully, no half measure kind of thing. I mean, if you're going to hint at it, you're really going to have to pay it off at some point. Otherwise, it does feel like you're just playing at the idea of it and it's and i would say that is in a weird way insulting yeah it can be i can under I, it doesn't insult me by any means but i definitely yeah. can see how it could insult someone um, or make them feel like shorted you know by what could have been but yeah man uh that being said i really enjoyed it it sounds like you enjoyed it uh, we we both liked it quite a bit i would highly recommend people if you haven't gone out to see it on opening weekend take your kids uh, go enjoy the movie. I don't think that it is going to be as lasting personally. I don't feel like it has any sort of long, like major retentive oomph to it with a story perspective, but it's a good time. And there's a lot of meta stuff that goes on with Olaf. I think he's a lot more funny in this one personally than he was in Frozen. Did he work for you better? He worked a lot better because he had a lot more room because I the first movie he was only there for half the movie so that's this true time, you yeah you have to throw him in the very beginning so he has a lot more time to shine and just be that you know, this is a darker movie as you mentioned so he being kind of the comic relief to take the edge off it was really great and yeah you know, he has a couple of incredibly powerful scenes yeah some real existential crisis stuff going on with him <laughs> that, that again i think is more tailored for adults right i oh, think yeah. that that's really the key to this sequel is that it, it got older frozen grew up um, in, you know, with its audience to some extent, because the kids that have watched the first one are now what, five or six years older. And so they're feasibly ready to handle something a little bit heavier. So yeah, frozen Two, good stuff. Uh, listeners, if you haven't seen it, definitely go check it out. It's going to be in theaters for probably all the way through Christmas would be my guess. Disney's oh, yeah. going to run with this one over the winter season. Uh, you got time, but it's worth seeing. Well, the next film we're going to talk about is, a lot different, and, and that, and they're gonna just get even more and more different as we go from here. So this film is Honey Boy, directed by Alma Harrell. This is her first feature film, and it's written by Shia LaBeouf. It is starring Shia LaBeouf, Lucas Hedges, and Noah Jupe. The plot synopsis is this: a young actor's stormy childhood and early adult years, as he struggles to reconcile with his father and deal with his mental health. That being said, sounds very much like a fictional kind of thing and a drama. What you need to know about Honey Boy, if you're not aware, is that this is Shia LaBeouf's sort of personal 
therapy session. Uh, it is born out of some journaling that he did while he was in rehab after an arrest. And it's him recounting a history of his childhood growing up with this abusive and alcoholic father. And it goes from there. So what did you think about this one? I'm of two minds on this one. Uh, first and foremost, it is brutally unflinching. It's an unflattering picture all around of everybody. It's very honest. It's very raw. Uh, especially Noah, the younger, I don't, how do you pronounce his last name? Noah Jupe? Jupe. I think it's Jupe. Jupe. Yep. I don't know. He, I just say Jupe. He is great. He really uh, is. So it's Lucas Hedges is great. I feel like he's kind of maybe in another movie, but he's still great. But, uh, so that part of it, the performances and the honesty, the sincerity and the authenticity is all there. Now, the experience of watching it, it does feel, I think self-indulgent is too strong of a word, but it's so specific to him that's hard to connect with that as a general story. Is it so therapeutic to him that it's like, I'm glad he was able to get this out of him. It does feel like a, like a therapeutic exorcism. Just something that he was just getting all those demons out. So it's interesting to see that, but it's so inherently Shia's story that it took me out of it a few times knowing that he wrote it, knowing that he's in it, and that it is him. Like, they all they did is change two names, and it's essentially his story. Yeah. So I, I'm surprised because. I didn't think you were going to feel this way about it. And <laughs> this is exactly how I felt about it. And I, I've seen a lot of people praising it for being this raw, powerful experience. And I'm, I understand that. Like I, I got teary eyed. I felt strongly during the feel, film. I was empathetic for what I was seeing on screen, but ultimately I love that you pointed out Lucas Hedges feeling like he was in a different movie. So the film goes back and forth. It, it has Lucas Hedges playing the older character of Otis, who, as you mentioned, is actually Shia. And I, I don't even know, like, the changing of the names thing, for me, it was like, we all know it's you. So it's annoying me. <laughs> like, just call yourself Shia. But uh, Lucas Hedges is playing him, right, in this older stage of his life. And every time we would flash back to prison, it was actually, I guess, the present, and then he would be recounting these stories from his childhood it did it just felt so off the pacing or the the editing it, it just the cuts didn't feel like the transitions worked for me very well and then you know when we dealt with this other section of film which was shia playing his father and noah jupe playing a like 12 year old version of shia who had just broken into acting there was a lot of great dramatic sequences but the entirety of the whole was things that i just didn't relate to like i i i don't i understand that if this young character is constantly seeing his father treat him like crap that there may be something too like shia playing that out in front of a camera in order to somehow like you said exercise this past this ptsd that he has but from a viewing standpoint, there's nothing enjoyable about watching it other than, oh. wow, he's a really good at being an asshole, um, you know, like at playing <laughs> that role. And so I just I ended up in this really weird place when it was over of 
having a deep respect for what I saw accomplished, but yet not really finding it necessary or enjoyable as a viewer. It's very strange because I can't connect with it on a, I guess from an audience point of view, because the story is so is incredibly unique in the sense that you have to be a child actor. You have to have a, a father who is not going to win father of the year um, for many, many reasons. And then he has to be, he has to grow up. He has to be in rehab and then he has to be at exercising all this stuff. So there's a lot of things I have to jump through in order to get into that character's shoes. It's, it's very, it's more difficult than it should be to step into that character's shoes. I mean, I get on a base level that, uh, you know, the dad is terrible and what he does is, again, it's unflinchingly honest. If that is, if that's even remotely accurate, then it's terrifying. It's horrible. But I mean, those are the only scenes that make sense, but everything else like, well, this is his story. Yep. I think we're on the same page. So for this one, you know, I guess I don't necessarily always recommend or not recommend for people to see this. I don't see any need to see this on a big screen. I like to usually try and give that piece of advice to people. I do it in the Facebook group all the time. People's money is precious and there are so many films out there that you can watch, especially this time of year with awards contenders. I wouldn't be surprised if this does show up in awards conversations, but it's the kind of movie that I think works just fine at home personally, um, as it would seeing it on a big screen. Yeah. I mean, I think just the math, the way it works out, I mean, if you give it three months, November, it came out. So it'll probably be on streaming or something by the time the independent spirit awards are around. So I'm pretty sure that will probably be this, the ceiling it hits. Yeah, I think it even I think it's an Amazon. Picture. Oh, okay. I think they might have picked it up. So which would mean it would come out pretty quickly, like you'd have a short theater run and then pretty quickly just hit the streaming service. So, yeah, it, it'll be available uh, for sure. Um, but I just I, I don't know. There's just something unique about like I said, I, I'm really happy for Shia. Honestly, he's been through a lot. And I think it was definitely enlightening to learn about him and see the crap that he went through and realize, OK, all this stuff that we've known about Shia LaBeouf from his interactions with law enforcement and yeah. all the problems he's had in his career that are posted all over the paparazzi, right? Like now we get a little context <laughs> and there's more empathy. Um, but yeah, you know, we're going to be talking about the peanut butter Falcon next week on this show. <laughs> uh, we're doing an episode on it and it, you know, I would recommend that movie to every single person before I would recommend honey boy. And I think it, largely serves the same role yeah uh he is a great talent i remember you have one of those moments where you just see somebody on screen you're like that person has it whatever it is the undefinable it i am i could tell you right now my little brother was watching something on the disney channel and it was one i think it was some sitcom that shia was on and i got roped into watch it and i was like this kid has it whatever it is he has some spark of genius in him and I'm glad he, I've always believed he has something in there and he's had a lot of things to overcome. And the, I guess the value of this movie is seeing the things he's had to overcome. Yep, absolutely. I would agree with that. Let's move on to the next one. The next one is Waves. This one um, is going to be even more different than <laughs> before. Although it sort of does keep the Honey Boy structure of like two kind of different pieces to the film. But in a different way, this is directed and written by Trey Edward Schultz, who's got two features before this, Krisha, 
the most accurate Thanksgiving movie ever made, maybe. And <laughs> it comes at night, the completely mismarketed A24 horror film from a couple years ago. It stars Taylor Russell, Kelvin Harrison Jr., who also was a breakout uh, from a performance earlier this year in Loose, and the aforementioned Sterling K. Brown as the father of uh, Kelvin Harrison Jr.'s character. The plot synopsis uh, waves traces the journey of a suburban family led by a well-intentioned but domineering father as they navigate love, forgiveness, and coming together in the aftermath of a loss. This film does work mostly in two halves. I'll lead with that. The first half follows our character, who is a young teenage boy, Kelvin Harrison Jr.'s character. He's a wrestler. Um, he has a good life going on, and... In short, that quickly starts to fall apart for him. And what we see is a character who is very rapidly losing his grasp on the world that he knew, the place that he had in his world, and some of this, this what the plot synopsis calls domineering father, but well-intentioned. <laughs> Many people are going to say the words toxic masculinity, and there's probably an element of that here. Um, but there is also that well-intentioned nature and love from that father. And this character's world starts to fall apart. And basically the whole first half of this film is just this overwhelming emotional experience leading to tragedy. Uh, one thing after another for him. And then the second half is more focused on his sister and how she and the rest of the family kind of cope with some of the experiences that have taken place and learn to move on to deal with it. Um, Lucas Hedges is in this movie too. So um, it's really weird. Like, you know, six degree thing. Sterling K Brown was in frozen Two. Now he's in waves. Lucas Hedges was in honey boy. He's in waves. <laughs> I don't know what's going on, but um, yeah. So how did you feel about waves, Paul? It is a, uh, a lyrical, just emotional roller coaster. I didn't know where this film was going at any point. Cause I was so invested in what it would, it just, you start at one place and then it just wildly spins in a horrifying other new direction as it kind of unravels. And I liked, I like trying to describe what this movie is without spoiling it <laughs> because that's the challenge. There's so many things that happen. And then there's that, like you mentioned, there's a point in the movie where it just breaks where now you're following somebody else. And I, I would say that the first, 75% of this movie is brilliant, and that last tacked-on part to me is it's still a continuance of the same story, but it's such a jarring shift because you're following now a character who you weren't really – who was only very barely there in the first two-thirds of the film. That's the sister. You're talking about yes. the sister, yeah, yes. played by Taylor Russell, who's phenomenal, by the yeah. way. In oh. fact, all the acting performances are – just outstanding. So astounding that I had a hard time believing that it was Kelvin Harrison Jr. The same guy from Loose. There's two completely different characters, and I was blown away. Like this guy is incredible. He really is. It's it's a breakout year for him, and I think most general audiences will not see Loose and will not see Waves and will not know who he is until the day that he picks up some crazy major blockbuster property just like michael b jordan did 
you know, very few people knew who he was from Fruitvale Station and from Short Term 12. I did. You did. But if you're not that kind of film goer, you don't know who he is. But then all of a sudden he's Creed <laughs> or, you know, he's in Black Panther and you're like, oh, who's this awesome actor? And you go back in time and start watching his earlier films. I think that's going to happen with Kelvin Harrison Jr. Yeah, definitely. And uh, Taylor Harrison, uh, Taylor Russell, to your point, for what she has to do, she nails it. I mean, she doesn't have a lot of screen time, but when she does, she becomes a focal point, puts the uh, already heavy movie on her back and carries it almost single handedly. The emotional journey, like you said, that this takes you on is really, really weighty. And I think viewers should be aware that you're going to come out of this film like needing a hug, um, needing to go sit by yourself in silence and think for a little while. The thing that I really enjoyed, not that's the wrong word for it, but the thing that I am glad that came from this wasn't necessarily just an empathy for me, but I liked seeing a family that is not perfect, but that clearly loves each other despite the mistakes they've made. And ultimately uh, is, I guess, sort of a spoiler. I don't know, whatever, but like it, it gets this, they have a redemptive arc to the way the family deals with these experiences. And that's important to me. I think a lot of films will vilify characters more so than this one does. It felt more honest and realistic to the characters and to the family members. And it also just makes you really think about what it's like. And ironically, you know, his previous film, Loose, Kelvin Harrison Jr., that is, was similar in that you it shows you what a person in high school in that person's shoes may have felt like. And what their experience is like. And that's what it's like here, too. And what I saw is as he was tumbling further and further down this hole, it was something that you could see easily happening to almost anybody. Because it's not like he makes a ton of super bad decisions. It's these little steps that go further and further and further. And then bad timing, bad luck, and those mistakes can end up changing your life forever and that sort of scenario. I love the, well, the, the very beginning of the movie, there's that sermon and they, it, they talk about the importance of love and that is kind of the undercurrent of the whole film. And that's how you get from point A to point B at the very end. Uh, you know, again, it's not really, you don't really want to spoil anything, but that is the underpinning of everything. Everybody's doing things out of love. I mean, some of them get corrupted horribly and you see it most in the Sterling K. Brown's character. I mean, he's a guy who I think in most other scripts or other movies, he would be so one dimensional, hateable. He's intense, but you can kind of, you, you get where he's coming from. You might not agree with his methodology, but it makes sense. And he has a character arc, which I loved. Yep. Exactly. Totally agree. One other quick thing I wanted to ask you about is the music. So when I found out about this movie, I learned that the score was done by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. And it felt like such a strange pairing for them to be doing this pretty full on straight drama. And it it was just not, it didn't, it didn't jump out at me as like, Oh, that's the kind of movie they would normally score. How did you feel about the music in this? I think that there's so many quiet moments that they brought, uh, 
they have the ability to tell a story through the music more than most other people. Like, uh, when, uh, when they won that, or when they were, won the award for the social network, people were saying, well, there's, there are other better scores out there. It's like, well, you can almost take the dialogue out of the social network and you know exactly what the tone and feel is for each scene based entirely on their score. I think they did that again here because this is such a, there are quieter moments that are very introspective, especially with, uh, Kelvin Harrison's character. Yeah, I, I agree. And I thought it was good. I did not find it memorable or great in the way that the social network is a score I will literally put on to this day when I'm driving to work just because, or when I'm writing reviews, it's that kind of background music that you can listen to. I didn't, have any piece of waves that really hit me on that level or that way. There's an amazing opening sequence to this film with music that is, there's a a lot of songs that are used cultural uh, current music. And it is just a wild opening to this movie that sets the tone in a weird way for where it's about to go. Uh, It's, it's interesting. I mean, it is an a 24 film through and through there is, Always something about A24's movies that they choose to distribute that is unique in the style and the way that they deliver their stories and waves is certainly no different. And I think it's worth checking out. Do you? Yeah, it's definitely worth checking out. I'd call it one of those. It will definitely, it has the chance of being overlooked. And I think that would be unfortunate. I hope it's one of those movies that you you want to push on other people to, hey, see this. I know there's a lot of other great films, but this is something you can't miss. Sounds good to me. I can co-sign that. Well, the last movie is the one that we saw most recently, and that is Little Women, the remake or the, I guess, new adaptation, not really a remake. This is directed and written by Greta Gerwig, who made Lady Bird and based on the famous novel by Louisa May Alcott. The cast is incredible. It stars Sorcerer Ronan, Emma Watson, Florence Pugh, Timothy Chalamet, Laura Dern, Meryl Streep, Chris Cooper, Bob Odenkirk, Tracy Letts. Yeah, it just goes on and on and on. The plot synopsis, if you haven't read the novel already, it's pretty simple. Four sisters come of age in America in the aftermath of the Civil War. Uh, Paul, I'm going to throw this to you first. I know you have a weakness for period pieces and Hallmark movies. And I feel like this is in your wheelhouse. So what did you think of it? It is beautiful to look at. Just every shot is everything is so wonderful about it. And just the way it's put together. I mean, when I think of a period movie, most of them all look the same. I mean, this, I mean, some look great, but this is one of those that pop out. Like this is, it is just exquisite to, to look at. And in terms of the film itself, it is an empowering movie. I'll tell you right now, I did not know. I have never seen the 1994 version. I have never read the story. I went in as cold as possible. Wow. I knew nothing about it. Now, I will tell you this. I have known my wife for almost half my life. I brought her to the screening, and right before the movie started, I told her that. And she was horrified. I was able to horrify my wife of some odd years that, hey, I don't know this movie at all, this movie that you love. Yeah, that was, uh, I don't know how I got through life doing that. You were lucky, but luckily she found out now and now you've seen it. So <laughs> we can't really hold it over you too much. I mean, it's, 
remarkable. I had to ask her a couple of times, like, how is this different? And she was able to give me some uh, pointers in terms of the differences between previous iterations because she's known about, you know, the other version. I guess is the there's a lot. Oh, I imagine it's 150 years. I imagine there's been a few attempts at this. Mm -hmm. So uh, and she was able to tell me that basically it's intact and it but it has an interesting new uh, format to it, which I really appreciate. So I'm going to spoil that. And I hesitated and I've thought about it. I want to talk about that. So there is a meta storytelling device in play here in which. The, the film is essentially bookended by Joe's character essentially being the one who's written the book of Little Women and being Louisa May Alcott as well as Joe, in essence, is what's taking place. And I walked out of the screening and I immediately got on my phone and I texted somebody. I was like, hey, because he had seen the screening before us. And I was like, hey, that's not that's not in the book, right? Like, I haven't read the book in 20 years. I don't think that 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 was a thing in the 1800s like they weren't doing meta storytelling right and it's not it is new and it is something paul that could have gone so seriously awry in my opinion it is a choice that fans of this book could get so up in arms about but it was brilliant and i think that it served the heart of the story and the heart of what Louisa May Alcott's little women intention was all about. Uh, And I'll actually say this too. I read, or sorry, I listened to an interview with Greta Gerwig that I highly, highly recommend. She's on a podcast called the DGA podcast. So the director's guild of America will hold screenings and they will have one director interview another director. And this one was Ryan Johnson interviewing Greta Gerwig. These Ooh. things, I like geek out over these big time. And he was asking her about this meta aspect. And she said, you know, at the end of Little Women, and I, I don't care about really spoiling this either because this is a, <laughs> a book from the 1800s. Like you said, 150 years old. But at the end, Joe ends up taking a husband and part of the whole movie's lead up is will Joe or won't Joe actually decide to embark on a relationship or will she maintain her singlehood, her woman womanly singlehood, which is something that she's embraced for all this time. And in real life, Louisa May Alcott was told by her publishers that she had to change the ending or the book would not sell. They would not publish the book unless she made this character get married, which is, horrifying to think about in 2019 from where we are in a cultural standpoint and the way in which this film is bookended with this meta nature i think is a beautiful way to pay homage to or homage to what louisa may alcott really believed and wanted to do because she never wanted that to happen Uh, but she kind of sold her soul and i think that this movie kind of marries that reality with what actually happened in the book in a really cool way. Like you said, that could have gone, the decision to edit it the way that it did could have completely went off the rails very, very easily. Uh, but she not only does it well, I mean, this is an incredibly elegantly edited together film. I mean, the, the fact that I never was lost at any point, like what time, what period am I, I knew exactly where in the story I was. 
because the, uh, again, I don't want to spoil everything, but you kind of start in the middle and then you're flipping back between the past and the present. Yep. And her, the editing, the absolute discipline and control and knowing how to bounce between those two timelines elegantly and to let the audience always be aware of what's going on and where you're at and which characters you're with when in the story, in the timeline. I was never lost. I love that because I knew what it, what was going on. And then it allowed for some really beautiful symmetry of moments. Like you'd get something that usually in maybe other movies would like a, there's a moment where somebody does something and maybe in a book that gets paid off later. But now because of the way it's edited together, stitched together, you get them put together and it's just paid off immediately. And you get this, you, your expectations are there. Yeah, I, I totally agree. There's some difference in hairstyles that helps to let you orient to where you're at in the story. I like that. And even the camera work looks a little different, like the lighting, the kind of overall palette of the film, depending on what stage we're at, present or past, uh, is a little bit different. Just enough to help, like you said, give you that cue to know where you're at at all times. And it's it's a tough job. You're balancing four different daughters who you're trying to develop in depth and over different periods of time, jumping back and forth. It is a tough challenge. And three of these actresses are like superstars, essentially. You know, Emma Watson, Florence Pugh, and Saoirse Ronan. And yet they all have their moments and they all shine and none of them feel out of place to me. None of them feel like they overpower the others. I think they worked beautifully together. The supporting cast is absolutely divine. The little moments that we get from Chris Cooper and his role from Tracy Letts and his Tracy Letts is just like the king <laughs> of like small moments in movies this year for me. And then even Bob Odenkirk, when he comes in for a, a few minutes here and there as their father, who for most of the movie and the story is off fighting in the war, it's impeccably acted, in my opinion. I, I just I could not get over how much all of these characters or all of these actors embody their characters perfectly. Absolutely perfectly. I mean, Bob Odenkirk, I just felt warm the moment he popped up. I was like, oh, this feels right. This is perfect. So the film is probably going to get a lot of Oscar buzz. How are you feeling about it on a scale of like all of 2019? Is it high up there for you as far as best films of the year? Do you think it is deserving of those accolades? It's weird because typically the top end of my uh, list is usually you have to, you get degree of difficulty points. Like you have to really go out there and have a, super unique storyline or something that's very different because after a while, everything else looks kind of the same or everything outside the top 10 is pretty basic, but the top 10 is usually unconventional. This is an incredible execution of a very conventional 150 year old story. So it impressively takes a basic format that we all know It's a period piece. I mean, there's a lot of human drama but everything is so well executed that it does – it is fighting for a place in that top ten. I don't know that it's going to be in my personal top ten. But if at the end of the day, if it is in there, hanging in there, I wouldn't be shocked. 
So it is fighting for mine as well. And it's a movie that has lingered with me. It's there's a slowness to period pieces in general that sometimes I struggle with, but I have just thought about this one. I love that you mentioned that warmth that the Bob Odenkirk's character brought those feelings, those lingering emotions that just are attached to memories of watching this movie. It stayed with me. And I do think that this is going to be a major player. I think it's going to have a best director nod again oh. for Greta Gerwig. I think it's going to have a best picture nod. I think it's going to be all over the Oscars. Um, it is personally in my definitely in my top five ensembles of the year for our Seattle Film Critics Society Awards. And I love it. And I, I really am excited to see what kind of reception it gets because there are so many women who this story is supremely important to, who grew up reading this book, who have memories of their moms sharing this story with them and it being empowering. And I'm excited, excited, excited for this, one of our most talented female directors to have made this version that I think is still relevant today and that all new generations of young women can find that same empowerment in. And I think it's going to take off. I love how it does feel absolutely relevant. It's a 150-year-old story, and it feels like it was written today. A lot of the key points, I mean, they're points where they address a gender gap, the expectations of matrimony. These are still very relevant today. Uh, so it, I asked my wife, again, I, I didn't know the story, and she goes, no, that was all there. I mean, 150 years ago, and she broke out her copy, and she showed me a few passages. Uh, she loves this mo movie, by the way. And the one concern I would always have is, especially after I watched it, uh, other adaptations get updated, but updated in a very awkward way. Like there's Anne with an E on Netflix. Anne of Green Gables was updated with Netflix, but they made it super woke. And that's not where this story went. It was still honest to the story. And it's mm -hmm. still it, the fact that it's still relevant today is uh, incredible and kind of sad in a lot of ways. We still have a lot of weight to go. I would completely 100% agree with that. And I'm so glad that they didn't decide to put zombies in this one. <laughs> well, Paul, uh, thank you, man, so much. This has been awesome. And I'm glad that we got to talk about these four movies. Where can people find you? I mentioned Escape Into Film. That's the name of your review site, but where can they find that on the web? Where can they find you on social media if they want to engage with you? And what is going on in your world right now? <laughs> well, uh, I, again, escapeintofilm.com and on Twitter, escapeintofilm. I mean, I think I'm they're very thankful that those two names were available uh, because it makes it very easy. What is in my world right now is I am knee deep in the whole award season thing, so a lot of heavy movies about family drama. The other end of that is I do a lot of Hallmark reviews, <laughs> which is ridiculous to a lot of people. Like how do you revolt, how do you review movies that all are formulaic and homogenous? Mm -hmm. But, uh, at this point, this is, I'll tell you right now, uh, this is the first of nine straight days where there's a new movie. Actually, there's 12 new movies in nine days. So each day I'm out there. Uh, watching and reviewing. There's 40 movies this year. And I don't only do it during the holiday, but this is kind of the busy season. It's a, it's a nice palate cleanser to all these really sometimes bleak uh, for your consideration stuff. Very true. 
And you've got a whole tab on your website devoted to that, right? Like that. If I remember looking, there is a Hallmark section. Yeah, I didn't want to. I I don't want to apples and oranges. I want to take my Hallmark stuff and have it there, but it's off to the side. I mean, I'm not trying to say, hey, this five. What the a story like a a Hallmark movie? I give a five to is not is nowhere comparable to something like Joker. Like those are two different things. Like okay. I'm going to go ahead and put you over here, Hallmark movies. I have my other mainstream movies here, and they will coexist, kind of. But yeah, there's a whole thing dedicated. I know I, the web traffic this year is very specific <laughs> right now. I can tell when movies are on because people have searched for uh, the movie. I'm like, oh, wow, this is on. I know I can tell when a certain movie's on because Hallmark has them going on 24 hours cool. a day. That's neat. Well, and you're also in the Feelin' Film Facebook group. You're active there. So listeners, if you're not a part of that and you have listened to this podcast at all very many times, you've heard that plug over and over and over. But we do encourage people to come join that. If you're on Facebook, it is a wonderful place to come talk about movies. You can even talk about Hallmark movies. See, we welcome all kinds. We are in the midst of our 200th celebration week. This is an awesome time for us right now. We have episodes going out every single day between Monday and Friday. Sometimes we have two episodes dropping on different days. This week, we're doing the Peanut Butter Falcon, the Indiana Jones trilogy, the Shawshank Redemption. Um, I will have a website review out uh, of Queen and Slim by Coles Davis. We're excited to share that one with you this week as well. So we hope that you will check out feelinfilm.com and Subscribe if you haven't already. Make sure that you are getting all of these great episodes and then find us on social media at Feelin' Film or at Aaron L. White if you want to find me directly and let us know what you think. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Paul, thank you for being here. We will have you again on sometime soon with Patrick so we can dig into something deeper. And uh, yeah, until then, I guess uh, everybody have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places, and I'd love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. But be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.